I'm Fiona Banner, aka The Vanity Press, and this is The Squirrel's Heartbeat, a series of conversations reflecting on the environment, art and activism. The title of this series of conversations comes from a conversation I had with Lucia Petro-Justi. She referred to a quote by George Eliot, which goes... If we had a keen vision and a feeling of all our ordinary life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat. And we would die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk around well-wadded with stupidity. So I was drawn to her meditation on language, which is the medium in which our discussions are taking place, but also often the subject or topic of it. And it also got me thinking about naming and in terms classification and in turn gender. And as Marianne Evans took the name George Eliot in order to create an ambiguity around her gender, brings us in turn to the very non-binary nature of nature itself. And there in the conundrums we have in naming it or attributing any word to it at all. I started thinking about um, well-wadded in stupidity, which describes well our attitude, your and my attitude, around climate change to date. So the conversations are an attempt to unward some of that and at the same time face up to our cognitive dissonance and meet and talk viscerally in this weird time of lockdowns and restrictions when it's impossible to meet indoors. I'm here with Lucia Petrojusti, curator of general ecology at the Serpentine Gallery. Welcome to the Squirrel's Heartbeat. It is really beautiful to be sitting here amongst these trees in this open space, looking at the phytology medical garden and just taking some time to discuss ideas and where our practices cross over. I was struck by a very beautiful thing that you said, uh, (laughs) a simple thing, but a wonderful thing, which was, unfortunately, a tree is never going to be a curator. And so we need to address the ecological somewhere, somewhere else, somehow. I don't remember saying that. That's so interesting. I agree with myself. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me think many things when you made that statement, because, of course, like so many of the statements that we make, particularly at the moment when we are not sitting face to face and reading people always in a sort of nuanced and physical way, it was made through language. And there's somehow in it a sense of wanting to understand and engage in the language of nature which perhaps is not embedded within our current lexicon of language it also led me to think about how nature does communicate which is something that is way beyond my perceptual grasp and then I Going back to nature, started to think about this this book that I read quite recently, The Overstory mm, by book. Richard Powers. And in that book, the main protagonists are non-human. They're trees. And he discusses how trees communicate over 
years, decades, centuries, millennia, and also how they share immune systems. And I really felt that that book tries to understand trees when he's talking about the concentric circles of a cut tree it takes you even into the paper and the pages of the book as you're reading it. I wanted to ask you about language and nature as I've been listening to your podcasts and you are in those podcasts grappling with language as a way of discussing nature and addressing sometimes the problems of that. Interesting it's a really good and quite complicated question and I have to say that as you were talking, I realized that I actually don't quite agree with myself and the statement that you quoted, even though I I see where it was coming from, but it occurred to me that the statement trees cannot be X or Y is actually a statement that is suspect and potentially actually false, or rather that that becomes very complex once you start to ask the follow-up question according to what systems... So Filipa Ramos and I, who co-curate this series called The Shape of a Circle and the Mind of a Fish, are currently preparing for the next one. It occurred to me that what that series is trying to do is to sort of take almost unspoken assumptions that go with anthropocentrism. Not necessarily anthropocentrism itself, which is like a massive paradigm to shift, but like what are the things that go with? And by taking those little assumptions and unpicking them one at a time... Hopefully, there's a kind of enough of a almost like cosmological set of propositions that, you know, after which you kind of look back and you've left anthropocentrism somewhat behind. And one of the things that came up is I'm very, very, very suspicious of this accusation that often uh, scientists make when they say, oh, if you say that a tree is capable of love or generosity or humor you're being anthropomorphic. And I think it's quite the opposite, actually. I think what it's trying to say, and I'm thinking about Eduardo Cohn and a bunch of anthropologists relate this. It occurs to me that what is to say that a tree isn't capable of love, generosity or humor, for example, if not only the fact that we have defined humor, love and generosity in our own image, like that idea of God making man in their own, his own image, tells you more about man telling that story in that moment than it does about God. Because we are always describing it, nature from the centre and from our point of view, and in terms of how it can be a resource for us. Yes, because we are in a kind of extractive, you know, and then you can go... Obviously, you can add all the other words here, like extractive, colonial, all of those paradigm. And therefore, we have to make ourselves, we make ourselves cognitively the guardians of a certain set of properties that are in fact not. So to say a tree cannot be a curator, well, I mean, it's true according to human-centered conversation. I mean, I also don't necessarily care about curating all that much, but, but it's true But a tree cares a hell of a lot to finally get to your question about language. And I think it's really interesting here to note that 
I wouldn't necessarily, and neither would you, I suspect, work in the art context if we felt it useless. That given that there is not an immediately clear or a unique way of, I don't know, adapting or transforming language to match the infinite complexity and somehow infinite depth of the environmental. All you can do is put as much as possible of those different and diverging and sometimes contradictory languages out there, including art forms, all of them, in order to make a kind of, you know, make a compost as rich yes. as possible. I've been grappling with this idea of entropy and language. It's really come to the forefront since spending time here at Phytology, where things are so constantly changing and decaying and sort of overlapping. And I've really been thinking about my frustrations with language often as I use it and how so many things are happening all the time here in this space. It's not the erasure of a gallery space or even a conference space. It's just the sort of layers of time and nature constantly making themselves evident to you has made me realise the linearity of language just feels so so limiting and I think that's something that I've always been grappling with and dealing with and almost celebrating a frustration with or being sunk into a frustration with but it's been articulated by spending time in this space and also yes just the evidence of time and soil and I know that you talk about messiness quite a lot <laughs> and I enjoy that because I think you know, thought is a messy process and we try and kind of pull strands out of it in order to communicate and build on and, and sort of work with. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's also kind of... I'm reminded of something that George Eliot once wrote, but I can't quote it directly now. Uh, but something along the lines of it would be like hearing the grass grow and we should go mad from the uh, sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think there's... There's definitely a reason for the simplification and filtration that the human brain, as in fact all other species' brains, need to do. We would be like messy blobs, probably, yeah. otherwise. And so artist work, for example, for me, is just, like personally, is incredibly important. Because most of the time you approach it by thinking and then every, just every once in a while you don't. And that is, there's something strong about that. I was thinking about this term non-violent direct action because of the work that I did recently with the um, Three Full Stop Sculptures and Greenpeace. And making art is maybe an indirect and direct form of non-violent action. And that's what we've been doing all the time. It interested me that to other people it seemed like such a radically different 
agency and in some ways I understand that because obviously the work was happening outside it was maybe had a more confrontational element and the work that went into the sea is invisible to the human eye and different systems of exchange to the conventional art world as we know and discuss it or have known and discussed it perhaps but in a sense all art is a form of activism and all art is an action you know the act of making it performing it putting it into public or maybe less public spaces is an action that is not so dissimilar so I wonder what your thoughts were about activism and art Yeah, interesting. And actually, this brings me to a question that I would probably ask you back. (laughs) But all art is a form of... Well, certainly all art is a form of conviction. And I wouldn't know how to necessarily define the difference between activism and conviction. I'm not entirely sure. But, But it seemed to me like one of the brilliant things that that work that you're speaking about did, that you did with it, was the work was essentially the same, but the organizational structure and the systemic structure of its presentation was slightly tweaked. So that instead of assuming that an artwork belongs in a specific space, even if that space is the ocean, but that then the organizational structure around that presentation is, let's say, a gallery or museum context, or even like an art world discourse, And look how much of a difference it does to tweak the system around it. So in a sense, the question that I would have for you is, of course, there's the sculpture, there's the action, and there's the message. Not that those three are that separated, but there are at least those three, if not more. When you look at that, do you feel like the artwork is the whole thing? Or do you feel that the artwork is inserted in the middle, like as a kernel, or as the core of the onion of a thing? Or both? The physical sculpture can't be separated from what happened to it mm-hmm. and how those happenings were staged. So the ritual around the work is the work in many ways. For me, the ritual would get down to matters of materiality also. So a discussion around the granite that those sculptures were made from and how incredibly ancient it was, an acknowledgement of an interest on my part in geology and deep time and what is time and that that material was so resistant to being shaped by me all of those things became a really important part of the project in Mm. fact I partially shaped them and partially left them as expressions of the eons in which they've been building around the planet I don't feel that the work is finished but then I don't feel that work is finished it interested me particularly that this material so powerfully hard and so charged and layered and complex and yet 
kind of ephemeral because ever changing, which is what I think about art is that it is ephemeral, and I'm both amused and confounded and subject to and challenged by the ways in which we discuss art as if it isn't ephemeral, as if it is something permanent, instead of hosted by time in time in the moment, as if it's something permanent that doesn't change and doesn't reflect the different times and ages in which it exists. So mm. That may have something to do with the refusal to acknowledge that we're going to die, Yeah, I think. Yes, absolutely. In this particular culture yeah, that we are yeah, currently yeah, situated yeah, within. Yeah. And so nothing is permanent, but we think it's so, so that we don't have to think that we yeah. will die. Yeah, and you could say the very making of art object is to put up a resistance to that notion as well. Yeah, that's true. But you see, I think this is very interesting, and the sounds from the city that are probably filtering in through this conversation kind of made me think of it, actually. Right now, we're in a garden, and then there's a kind of a fence, and then there's the city on the other side. Obviously, the sounds travel. I'm sure the spores from fungi cross those fences. We did, yeah. with a code to open the lock. So animals certainly can. And so there is a kind of cognitive tendency to think of something and then the outside of something as a boundary. And yet, yes, this photology is a, the, the more garden-looking part of extended London. But to imagine that the city over there that we're looking at is not also environment exonerates us from treating it appallingly. So, or exonerates us from making the statement that actually that noise or pollution or materials or whatever also come in here into the ground and into the kind of ways in which the species interact with one another. So anyway, that's a long detour to make a comment about what you've just said, which is I think there's still a tendency in the appreciation or assumptions that are made around art, there's still a tendency to think of like the artwork is the sculpture. There's Fiona, the artist, making the sculpture. And then there's Fiona, the activist, you know, doing the action and sending the message and all of this. Whereas I'm very interested in the fact that those two things are inextricable from one another and might actually be part of the same gesture as you've described yourself. And so one of the puzzles that I'm asking myself now around ecological practice as this kind of extended practice is like a practice that inserts itself into other fields and by doing that doesn't just remain as its own like distinctive object. It's not just the garden as opposed to London but rather infects or affects all of the other layers of the onion. And therefore they too become artworks in themselves, potentially. It's kind of like you use the word ritual and it really hit me that you're absolutely right. That the ritual is the performative transformation of something into something else or a transition or a, or a process of going through some kind of a portal. And so one of those rituals is actually the ritual of transformation that happens not from like an artwork being separated but being put inside as some kind of time capsule but more touching something and by touching it transforming the whole thing and thinking of you put your finger in the water and the ripples are all over yeah. it gave me a lot of food for thought 
how you just responded to this question. It brings me back to the idea of the porosity of boundaries mm -hmm. and how we are extremely sensitive to, to boundaries. It's like we are overdrawn to boundaries or we become oversubjected to boundaries. I was thinking about the sea as a boundary. Mm -hmm. In recent years, I started working with these found paintings of, of the sea. In fact, they're found paintings of boats. And I started making interventions in the painting. To begin with, I just painted out the boats. Mm -hmm. Then I put in punctuation, full stops from various fonts. Of the language kind of struggling, language sinking, language on the edge, on the precipice. But they were also inspired by the time that I spent on the coast, mm -hmm. looking at, across towards France on the English Channel. And that sea is an isn't a boundary. It is and isn't a channel. It is and isn't a conduit it is and isn't a barrier. I became really sensitised to that because I, I've been down on the beach several times when migrants have come in on, on small boats and really was just so struck, viscerally struck, by the precariousness and braveness of, of that journey as the end of a very, very long journey. And since making these physical sculptures and putting them in the sea at Dogger Bank, which is also a very poignant bit of water because it's where we, thousands of years ago, used to be connected to mainland Europe. I've been thinking about those sculptures and their life down there and how the fish actually do not respect boundaries, which is why there's been a huge political furore around fishing and our, our boundaries with the upcoming Brexit something incredibly beautiful that somebody said in one of your podcasts well I thought this is really really beautiful so Costa Stasinopoulos said the waves define the edge the land is defined by the submerged worlds that define it mm. I thought that was just a, a really beautiful thing because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is surface and how we have conditioned ourselves to read the surface. I wondered how that fed into your current project that you, you mentioned earlier. I think this question that you raise is really very much also a political question. Originally, the event was going to be about fungi and mycelium networks because they are so compelling. I mean, what's not to love? You know, they kill you, they poison you, you can make bricks out of it, the military's working with them, they clean up the planet. I mean, what's not to love? And they make you trip. And then we realized that actually by looking at this kind of density below the ground, we encountered other things. And not only like um, multi-species cooperations and decompositions and tree roots and uh, archaeological remains and all of this, but also we encountered like a stack of things that are like ecological, political and... I suppose, cultural in the sense of the imaginary. And so we started to go, okay, well, what if we did an event on, like, soil, yes, but also earth, and also land, and also ground? And who would be the voices or the interlocutors that could speak to looking down 
in those different lights. And mm -hmm. when you talk about land, obviously you're talking about settler colonialism and you're talking about expropriation, mm -hmm. dispossession, land rights. When you're talking about the earth, you're also talking about survivalist escapism and all of the follies, or even like Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition, you know, begins The Human Condition by asking, what is it that we hate so much about the earth that we constantly look up to try to leave? And this is during the space race. So that's the earth and the ground is kind of this strange philosophical question. And then soil, of course, the biological. And to try and look at those things simultaneously. And it's a method that I think is probably heavily borrowed from Anna Ting, because it's the method that she uses in general in her work, but certainly in The Mushroom at the End of the World. It's a method that's borrowed by Elaine Gann as an artist. It is a kind of potentially infinite, because it's always replenishing layer mm -hmm. cake of, of disciplines and thought mm -hmm. and an experiment. When I first started reading about the environment, it was steeped in Marxist thought, writers like Raymond Williams, and that was very much about boundaries and ownership but it didn't come together with what was simultaneously happening actually through Thatcher's government which was starting to talk about greenhouse gases mm. and in fact the early climate deniers came in because they were deployed by the US government to mm. deny the impact of mining and fossil fuels on on the atmosphere but all of these disciplines were very separate poetry, ecology, they were all separate mm. disciplines. What I find incredibly engaging and hopeful about your practice and the conversation that is happening around it is that it is honestly attempting to mix all of those things up. And of course, climate justice is always at the heart of it. But if you take all of those things apart, the very systemic issues don't really get addressed because as you say it is a mess mm. it's a it mess is messy it <laughs> is entropic it is kind of can't hold it easily in your hands yeah. i do worry about kind of i suppose wrong turns in terms of maybe climate activism I and mean, you've mentioned this the sort of marxist legacy versus the kind of climate change i suppose science and I think one of the other things that have gone maybe wrong and that determine actually who speaks about climate when is the notion of, I suppose, conservation and nature itself as this kind of unspoiled human-less thing, which completely forecloses and represses the foundational settler colonial violence and the systematic and violent erasure of those tens of thousands of years of indigenous histories and relationships, actually interrelations between, not even between, it's not a dichotomy, but like the interrelations of environment humans. And the fact that it, it's, um, I'm quoting now from a film from Caribbean Film Collective, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It made me think also that because we don't say it doesn't mean that it isn't there. True. 
And I was thinking of this radical book conference that I went to, well, was part of in Vancouver last year. And there was an artist speaking, Sebastien Orbin. And he had a very unusual way of speaking. He spoke very, very slowly. I didn't know why this was, but I noted it. And the next day at the book conference, he introduced himself and he was of Cree descent, made a beautiful Cree alphabet. I realised more about the way that he spoke and the indigenous peoples around Vancouver. Obviously, very complex history that I think is being acknowledged in quite a deep and very complex way right now. But... The slowness of how he spoke was because his people spend time in nature and they listen to nature and they don't talk over nature. That is a matter of language for them. I was really, really interested in it. So we sort of often cover things over in language as well, don't we? You just made me think of Tim Ingold. I was in a deep Tim Ingold tunnel yesterday night. At a certain point in the middle of a lecture, he talks about having looked into the history of paving roads. And that that history, which is, you know, 18th, 19th centuries, yes, the paving of roads was done to facilitate wheeled vehicles, but also there was a wide held belief that the paving of roads was actually protecting people from the kind of toxic, potentially dangerous exhalations, I guess, of the ground. And so that paving was kind of putting a lid on whatever the heck, the vapors, spores, I don't know exactly. And interestingly, the kind of toxicity of the ground most probably had to do with actually human waste than anything else. So this idea of like putting a lid on something, whether it's auditory lid or a, or like a physical lid, is really interesting. Mm. And I suppose mirroring that back into then the question of like speaking over nature, what is it that we're so afraid of hearing? What is it that we're assuming emerges from that sound that we want to speak over it so much? We should ask this garden, actually. <laughs> I think it would tell us that we are frightened of its power. Its intelligence, I think, as well. And that we're going to die. I mean, again... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that these trees will outlive us. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, in the best of cases, they'll feed off us, which is quite cool. Yeah. Lucia, that was terrific. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking Thank to you. Thank you, Fiona. Really a joy. Thank in this you. rather layered acoustic landscape. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that we got all of the different layers of the acoustics because I think that speaks to the mess that you, yeah. you described. The Squirrel's Heartbeat is hosted by me, Fiona Banner, a.k.a. The Vanity Press, and was made in collaboration with Michael Smythe of Nomad Projects. All of these conversations were recorded at the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve in East London. Production, Alice Walters. Audio production and sound design by Lucia Skazokio from Social Broadcasts. And video production by Joseph Sikorsky.
This series is supported by the Arts Council England and the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve Trust. <laughs>